Welcome to the 5-7 Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Pree, and today I have Katerina Lindley on the podcast. Katerina, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Awesome. So, Kat, could you please give an introduction of yourself? So, I'm a family doctor in Texas, and um, I'm actually from Croatia, but I've been in the States for 20-some years. I have five kids. I do direct primary care, and I do some advocacy work for healthcare and veteran care. How long have you been doing, how long have you been a doctor? Um, I finished residency in 07, so practicing on my own 12 years. Okay, how's that going for you? Awesome, I kind of did a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I worked for a big uh, corporation, hospital, I was medical director and different things and uh, as the healthcare environment kept on changing, more requirements, more bureaucracy, I've decided to open my own practice and do something that we call direct primary care, where patients actually uh, pays monthly fee, membership fee, we call it, um, and they have um, they can be seen by me for anything, for their regular checkups, for physical, if they're sick, as many times as needed, just for that monthly fee. So, for example, for children. Uh, it's my fees are anywhere between twenty five to like uh, seventy five uh, per adult per month. So it's very reasonable, transparent. There is no extra cost. Patients like it. I love it. So it's been great. And this goes without having to have insurance. So it's highly encouraged that you have insurance. I don't ask you if you do or not because I don't use your insurance for um, what we need to do. But uh, this goes really well for people who have high deductible plans or. Uh, um, short-term plans where you can save a lot of money on your primary care because we can get work, radiology, different things for very reasonable prices. And then if you go to the hospital, you still have something as a fallback because, you know, um, primary care is not something that costs a lot of money, but if you end up in a car accident or have to have your appendix taken out, hopefully you do have some kind of coverage. Right. And, and what exactly save... Obviously, you said that you've done a lot of work. What mm -hmm. was it that? What was it about the bureaucracy that made you want to leave? That made you want to uh, start your own practice? So, I actually, recently uh, wrote an op-ed because I've been kind of thinking about the um, state of um, healthcare in our country. You know, especially with this push to go toward Medicare for all, which I'm totally against. So, um, as the bureaucracy kept on uh, increasing, we started getting more requirements. One of them was electronic medical record. And you would think by having electronic medical records, we can all communicate. We cannot because we all have different uh, electronic medical records. And um, there is more and more um, requirements by the insurance and CMS to fill out certain things about patient that have nothing to do with uh, patient care. So you increase in the paperwork part that physician has to do. This time it's on the computers, it's not on a paper. But lots of times, like, I don't know, when you go see your doctor, you can have the best doctor in the world, but you'll find, just kind of, next time you go, pay attention. They'll spend a lot of time on their computer, not because they want to, but because they have to. And what I found that I spend most of my time on the computer without even looking at the patient because I had to ask certain questions and, you know, none of us are typists or like, I'm not great at any of that. So I have to look when I'm doing things and I would not spend as much time with the patients. But I realized that we have, I have become, I have an accent, so I'm going to say this wrong, wrong, but like automatic on type of a thing where I just have to like put in data for someone else that had nothing to do with the patient. And I didn't like, not necessarily myself, but I didn't like what this had, was doing to me professionally and personally. Did it feel impersonal? Totally. Because half of them, when you're typing, you have to turn your back to the patient because how are you going to type while you're looking at them? And, you know, the table is not facing the patient. The chair is facing the patient. So I, anyway, and, and then it just started getting ridiculous. You start getting... They asked us to do prior authorization on medication that cost $4 at uh, Walmart and things like that. It was totally getting out of hand. And there were some other reasons. 
But uh, I had a friend, great friend, who was doing direct primary care, and she was trying to get me into this for past few years, and I was kind of reluctant, mainly because I did not want to go into private practice. I didn't want to be my own boss. And um, something kind of happened where I decided to resign. I resigned, and a month later, I opened my own practice. And I've been doing this for almost two years, and I've never been happier. I actually work um, sometimes longer, not necessarily more hours but longer hours because i i don't come to the office unless i have a patient so if i don't have a patient i might go do something or spend time with my kids but that means that if patient calls me and they need me to see them at nine o'clock at night i'll go in i've done it even uh i always tell this it was saturday i was in my pajamas watching uh, captain america i love avengers so um you know, she she needed to be seen, and she texted me on my phone, and I was like, well, I'll, I'll come in if I can come in my pajamas. And this is someone I know, you know, plus my office is very close by. And she texted back and said, I'll come in my, in my pajamas too. But this kind of illustrates that, you know, doing direct primary care, patients can reach me directly. They don't have to call. Um, clinic and then go through layers, 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 layers of people until it gets to the doctor. And by the time it gets to the doctor or it's already gone, patient doesn't have it, or the message you got is not really what it happened. So, you know, it's it just, um, for me, this has opened the venue where I know I'm doing something good and um, I know I'm helping people and it's just a relationship between them and me. And um, it's been awesome. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, using the example that you just used, you know, I could care less, you know, what a doctor wears just as long as, you know, you kind of get what you need. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm more interested in your expertise than, than what you're wearing, you know? And I think that it's a really good idea, you know, what you're doing, because it seems, I, I think that we're in a bit of a, a transition in, in business and in med right now, because... I would say maybe 10 years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, say in the business world, it became the norm that you didn't have to wear a suit to, you know, you didn't have to wear a suit to a corporate work. Or if you're going to work for a software company, you know, people are wearing hoodies and jeans and stuff. And it's, it, and it, things started really turning around. And then a few years after that, there was home from work started becoming more popular. And, and it seems like now that, entrepreneurship seems to be skyrocketing that there's people leaving their jobs and they're working on their own and they're working longer hours but they are so much happier in their lives doing doing these things than say doing the traditional nine to five uh me personally i work for myself as well i, I do it consulting so like you I get to play with my kids. I could see them in the morning or I could do uh, later hours, you know, depending on my wife normally works during the day, but it seems to really be taking off. And I, I would say maybe within 15 years that it's going to be more normal. I think it might be more of the norm for people to be in more of your position or doctors in your position. I wanted to talk about the medical records because I don't really know much about it. I've done some work for some dentists, and I know that they use different dental software for de Dentrix or depending on what they, uh, what the company uses. Is it the same thing with the uh, with the medical profession? So we all have uh, EMRs, and um, you know, uh, bigger corporations. Um, there, there is. I, I would say maybe three or four. Uh, specific um, companies that uh, hospitals will go with and uh, the idea originally was that we all were going to communicate uh, but then we realized that sometimes even if one hospital has one EMR the other one has the same EMR they still don't communicate mm -hmm. so now um, there's lots of uh, different products on the market I have an EMR specifically for direct primary care that actually one of my friends uh, and um his family have created the EMR and this big company and it's awesome for what we need and I just, you know, I love using it. It's very simple because it doesn't have to be complicated. But, you know, bureaucracy, um, the hardest thing about healthcare, it's not me and you. You know, you come to see me, I decide what you have and we decide together what to do about it. 
it's now getting your insurance to pay for it. Um, sometimes even if I know what's the best thing, if that medication is not on the insurance's plan, we have to go through layers to get them to pay for it. So for example, people who have diabetes struggle with insulin. Insulin, um, I'm not great with numbers, but insulin years ago was extremely cheap. And we have created some insulins that are better than others, but even they started kind of cheaper. Now it, these prices are like out of control. And you have especially families with younger kids who are struggling to pay for insulin, which doesn't make sense because you need insulin to survive some of these kids. So the whole healthcare system is out of control. And these EMRs sometimes, um, they're, you think they're good, but as these bureaucracy part increases, you need to start putting more and more stuff into your EMR. So um, I find myself, I still moonlight uh, um, in urgent care and things like that. Sometimes I'm clicking so many times through like click, 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 click. But at the end of the day, like my um, pointer finger, like I actually get like, get stuck from all that clicking. Because if you're doing that for 12 hours all day long, and sometimes I click, have to click 40 times in one patient's chart, it's just insanity of these regulations and things they ask that have nothing to do with the patient. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of what's frustrating for the physicians. Most of it is just to meet some kind of requirement, but uh, what is that requirement doing? We don't really see any benefit on our side. You mentioned that you favor a free market for people to have choices. Yeah. And now I understand that if if the government decides on what the health care will be, that means that there's going to be a, a there will not be any type of innovation. You know, you'll have one choice for health care. And I don't think people really understand what that means. I mean, there's they, they throw out all of the I'm saying politicians they say they point out all of like the good things you know like everybody will have a chance for health care but they don't mention any of the things that are negative about it could you go over your feelings on on private health care private and uh, one health care system so I am against Medicare for all and first of all I come from um, Croatia which used to be Yugoslavia which was a communist country and we had socialized medicine in my opinion and my personal experience that what I've seen it doesn't really work so currently the democratic uh, people who are running for democratic um, you know uh, for presidency and stuff they, it, it sounds like it's a great soundbite like everyone wants Medicare for all who doesn't want to have insurance and doesn't have to pay for it but let's talk about it to have for all of us to have Medicare for all first of all it's not going to be Medicare for all it will be some kind of uh, Insurance is one single payer plan. For that to happen, someone has to pay for it, which means we're going to pay for it. It's going to increase all of our taxes. Every single person is going to have increase in taxes. You're going to start getting, um, you get this huge amount of people that have insurance all of a sudden. You only have a fixed number of physicians, nurses, pharmacists, dentists, all of us but you're giving us a whole lot more people, what do you think is gonna happen? You're gonna start rationing care, you're gonna start having wait lists. Who's gonna put you on the wait list? Not physicians, it's gonna be a bureaucrat who's gonna start deciding, well, do we do a knee replacement in an 80-year-old guy who does, who's not gonna live as much, or do I put the knee replacement in a 40-year-old guy who's gonna live longer? So now you start getting all these ethical questions and who's going to make those decisions. It's not going to be you and me. It's going to be maybe insurance, some kind of bureaucrat, who knows. A triage department. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not, it sounds great, but I think people have to realize that, access, you know, having insurance card is not the same as having the actual care, as having, as seeing a doctor. So the fact that you might have an access doesn't mean you're going to have the, care and um you know that always goes to that question is uh healthcare an essential right or not that's something that everyone has to answer personally but in my opinion by having a single payer what's going to happen you're going to increase bureaucracy you increase bureaucracy the quality is going to go down there's no doubt about it and the reason i believe i believe in three things 
I believe in consumer choice, which means you decide where you want to go for your care. I believe in free market, which means that me and the doctor next door are going to have to compete against each other to deliver you better care, better care at lower price so that you come to one of us. And I believe in transparency. I believe in showing you exactly how much something is going to cost you so that you know when you come to me or I send you to have radiology done or labs, you're going to know how much money you're spending. And that's why I believe in free market, because free market increases competition, increases quality, and decreases prices. Um, if you have one payer and no one is competing, the prices are just going to go up, because you have nothing to compete against. They can, they can set the bar as high as they want it. Yeah, and you don't want to leave that into some bureaucrats hand because you know that it's going to get high and you know something else that i believe you know kind of you know like you is that you know with the competition in the market you know there's more competition for companies to come up with you know better cures or better better medication if if there's just one single you know entity there 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 will be no more innovation you know because obviously people are motivated by money you know and and I'm not saying that there's that it's a good thing or a bad thing, but in some cases it's good. If someone's motivated by money, maybe they'll put out a better product. If there's no money out there, you know, maybe some people aren't going to be motivated to put their best foot forward. You know, if you, if you know, you say you you send somebody to, to Walmart, okay, and they're paying five dollars an hour. Someone who's getting paid fifteen dollars an hour may work harder than that person who's making five dollars an hour. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So. So yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And you say the bureaucracy is the, the a problem. If there's one one healthcare system, it's gonna it's gonna go it's gonna become even worse then. Oh yeah, and, and you know, and our friends, our neighbors in Canada showed us that um, if they have something, I have friends who had uh, relatives who had like cardiac issues and they needed cardiac surgery. Their choice was to wait for several months actually to get even tested or just fly to the uh, United States and have it all done here. And they came here. But even take like the famous people, um, Michael Bablé, his son uh, was diagnosed with cancer. He could have stayed in Canada and had uh, everything done there. He, he chose to bring his son to UCLA. Even Mick Jagger had a heart surgery. He could have stayed in, in England and waited for the system. He came to United States and had done privately. So um, I think people, I think the systems around the world have shown us that you do start rationing care. You, you do start having long wait lists for procedures that are not um, life-threatening. So like knee replacement, you can probably, you I don't know how long is the wait in Canada, but if it's not emergent, the wait is going to be six to nine months. So yeah, Holy you, smoke. Yeah, you, you can probably look it up. I, I really don't know the exact wait numbers, so I don't want to you know, get in trouble. But the wait, the wait is in months. It's not like in weeks or anything like that. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that because from what you hear on TV, you know, the, uh, the Canadians have it all together and they have the perfect health care system. I don't know. It depends who you talk to in Canada. I think, and actually this is something that I've discussed this with you friends. I think people who don't use the system in Canada, who actually don't need surgery, they probably believe that their system is pretty decent because I'm sure their primary care system is pretty decent. Uh, but the ones who end up needing surgeries who actually have to use the system always say it's not because mm -hmm. they have to wait for it. So, you know, I, everything is kind of relative in life. And, uh, it's the same thing about, you know, uh, people wanting socialism in this country. I lived under socialism and communism, and I think if you go to Venezuela right now and ask uh, one of those people, what do they think about socialism, they will tell you, run as far as you can from it. And instead, we have people here saying, uh, oh, we can do it better because we're Americans. We know how to do it. <laughs> in society, like, if you go... Uh, you know, look at Russia. They started a socialist country. They end up communist country. Um, Yugoslavia. You know, I lived so I can talk about Yugoslavia, Venezuela, other ones. All these countries have shown us that no one can do it better, and we're not much better. So, um, you know, um, this idea that we all hold hands and sing kumbaya uh, and uh, think that like you can. Uh, 
on a big truck and iPhone and this and that without work. It's just a pipe dream. Like, you know, I came to United States when I was 20 some years old and I went to college here, medical school. I paid for it all myself and I still have some student loans I'm paying off. And uh, I drive a big car, but I work extremely hard hours for it and I still have student loans. People think that doctors are rich. We are not rich at all. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, I don't know, but I'm sure some are. We have bills as everyone else, and uh, our bills, for example, um, how many people, when they graduate uh, college, go to work and they get this job and they start getting um, retirement plans? I don't even know what the retirement plans are, because when I graduated medical school, at the end of uh, all my years of graduation, you know, school and stuff, I had $250,000 in debt. Who do you think is going to pay for it? Me, right? Yeah, that's a quarter million dollars. Exactly. And people don't realize that most physicians, and now it's even more than that, when we graduate school, we don't go to school for free like they, like they do in Canada or England or uh, uh, Italy or even Yugoslavia, Croatia. They go to school for free, you know. The government pays for it. Is that for so medical school as well? Medical school. Wow. Yeah. Here, I don't know about Canada. Canada is the only one I don't know, but I do know in Europe you go to medical school for free. The government pays for it. Here we pay for our medical school, and most uh, medical school graduates, uh, when I graduated, uh, I graduated, I think, at 220. That's, that was my uh, student loans. Now it's even more than that. The medical school is a lot more expensive. And, uh, you know, people have to realize that physicians have families and everything else. So um, it's not that easy to make a living as a physician. And, um, it's important to realize that, you know, free market is the way to practice healthcare. It's not socialized medicine, um, because at the end of the day, someone has to pay for it all. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'd love to talk about socialism. That's like a deep rabbit hole <laughs> to get into, and especially in, you know, you have uh, you have these Hollywood liberals, and you have. You know, people like Alexander Ocasio Cortez that think that it's it's so great, you know, and it's and it's not. And I I find it really surprising that you know that people are saying that socialism is a good thing. But you know, you have to realize nothing in life is free. Like, when has anyone gotten anything for free? Even when you were a kid and your mom had to go buy to the groceries, she had to have money to buy groceries. Who will give her money? Well, she had a job to pay for her groceries. Her employer had to uh, have some kind of product that they sold so that he can play his employees. Socialism, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a dream ideal. And I'm not saying it's, it's a bad to dream, but at the end of the day, like, unless, you know, unless everything's free, Who's going to pay for it? Yeah. Someone has yeah. to pay for something. You can't just expect to get uh, things for free. And when it comes to, um, you know, socialized medicine, VA system. VA system is an example of socialized medicine. And we're finding all sorts of issues at the VA system. So um, all I'm saying is uh, people need to use their head. They really need to think about it. And... Uh, just look at the history, look at the countries they have gone through it, and no one has done it, no one can do it, and we will not do it. Yeah, actually Venezuela is a really good example of a country that has uh, had great great oil resources and their socialist economy, and they're, you know, they're in a lot of trouble right now. But, but that's, just, that's just one example to look into. I'd actually like to move on to uh, veteran healthcare and your experience with veteran healthcare. So um, I've never worked in the VA system myself, but I've seen veterans as a part of, uh, it used to be called Pro-Choice Program, now it's a Mission Act, where they can come to a community uh, clinic and uh, be seen. The VA kind of allows them 10 visits and things like that. And um, I just found that lots of times they were, you know, over-medicated, taking too many medications for things that they don't necessarily need. Uh, and um, not all of their issues uh, were really being addressed. And it kind of, I started getting interested in that, and um, 
I traveled to D.C. to do some advocacy work and different things like that. And uh, I've spoken with several veterans. I've become good friends with them. And uh, we wrote a bill maybe to help some issues because we all know that PTSD is a big deal. You know, suicide, it's a huge deal. But I think what's been happening um, for the past 10 years, no one has realized the damage that like traumatic brain injury, uh, the extent of traumatic brain injury in this population, especially um, in um, veterans coming from the recent wars and stuff. So they would be diagnosed with uh, PTSD instead of TBI. So if you, if you have a TBI, that's like a concussion. Let's call it like concussion just because it's easier to kind of grasp it. And uh, you have symptoms of concussion. They can kind of mimic PTSD. Non-existent mental health. Now you are going to have mental health issues because I just gave you medication and messed you all up. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah. you know, um, we kind of went down the rabbit hole on that end and didn't realize until recently that we're dealing with two different things. And then, as you know, um, in my opinion, when uh, you guys finished military, I don't think that there is a good enough transition system to really capture people and identify who can be at risk and make sure that they're plugged into the community right away so that they don't end up uh, with uh, you know, attempted suicide or something, because we all can understand that probably most people have PTSD just because from the experiences that you went through, normal brain, and when I say normal, I hate normal word, but like, you know, let's call it normal. Um, if you put someone through... Um, I don't think war is, is, is natural. You know, I don't think it's a natural thing for people to see. Especially, you know, if you, if you, if you are... Like I said, I wasn't in military, but, you know, you watch enough TV and you talk to enough people. But, you know, having to watch your friends be injured or you injured or someone dying, it has to make an effect on every, every psyche. And if that happens over and over and over and deployments keep on getting longer, the times in between deployments is shorter. So you have no time to really decompress and kind of get back to semi-normal. And you keep on putting this um, traumatic experiences into a brain it's normal that everyone will have some kind of degree of issues with it and maybe some people learn how to cope with it some don't but that's not their we just need to make sure that we give them um tools to cope with it and i don't think we've been good at giving them tools to cope with so you end up with a suicide and uh one thing um i actually hate number 22 uh because number 22 is a lie number 22 is um based on retrospective study, I forget the, the, the timeline, but it was like, oh, I can't tell you exactly, but it was done like several years ago over, I believe it was 20, 10 year period and it was done by uh, um, coroners. So what they looked at is that the suicides of people who they knew were veterans and who, and who they knew they killed themselves, usually with like a, a gun or something, firearm or something, or if like, I don't know if they, jumped off the bridge, but they knew it was a veteran that would kind of be counted. But it, there is very like specific parameters. And they came up with a number actually 20.67, I want to say. So that did not include people who were not identified as veterans. That did not include people who uh, it looked like an accidental death, but it really they really drove off the bridge because they were drunk and they couldn't deal with their life. You know, yeah. trying to say that number was not, um, it did not include all the parameters. So the number 22 is actually probably, um, I believe it's a lot larger than 22. And I also feel that like people hear number 22 all the time. And if I hear blue, 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 blue all day long, I kind of become desensitized to blue. So when the people hear number 22, like all 22 veterans kill themselves a day, they probably start saying, Oh, I feel sorry for them, but let me go back to my life. Right. It doesn't have an impact anymore because we have heard it so many times. I think like we need to figure out a better way to reach the public to explain to them that no matter what the number is, even if the number is one, that's one too many. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, I'm not against number 22. Well, maybe I am a little, just in a sense that I think that, um, and I don't want to use the word no one cares because it's not true, but people have become desensitized to it and it doesn't have an impact anymore. I think, we, and, and my personal feelings is we should get away from that number and just say one is too many. Yeah, it seems that, you know, most guys, excuse me, you know, most guys, you know, when I got out, uh, I didn't go to war, but when I got out, you know, it's just like you're in the military one day and then the next day you're out of it, you know, and you you come from this world of incredible structure and, Mm -hmm. and purpose. And, you know, what you're doing is, is bigger than what you're, what, what you are. And then you get out and like, there's none of that, you know, I had a plan. So, so for me, the transition was, was easier, but guys who are just looking to get out and get out and they're just doing whatever, you know, I can see how, how it's like such a jarring experience, uh, coming into the civilian world, because, you know, when you come into the civilian world, it's a world of, um, of largely undisciplined people that go through their thing. The, the big things in their life are, you know, like they had a longer line than normal in, at Starbucks, you know, and, you know, I remember one day we, I was outside um, when I was in Korea, I was outside my room. I was smoking a cigarette and having a beer with a friend and someone came over and they, they mentioned that a guy who had, who had, uh, who we had served with, who had been in Korea with us died and he had just left a couple months earlier and he went to Iraq, I believe. And, you know, when you when you think about that stuff, you know, that's just one instance, you know, when, when you're hearing about your friends dying, you know, it's, it, it wears on you, you know, it's like, oh man, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, sure. We all volunteered and it's what we signed up for, but you know, civilians don't really have that kind of reality. You know, it's, it's different when you hear about someone who, you know, someone died in a, in a car crash that, you know, but they were drinking and driving, you know, it's like, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but, but, these things do happen and yeah, it does happen in war, but it's completely unnatural than, you know, leading, leading a normal life, you know, and people see veterans on the outside and they look whole. They have two arms, they have two legs and you know, they don't have any visible scarring, but underneath, you know, there's a world of hurt that people don't really understand. And, and it's, it's, it's getting to that world of hurt and letting them know that, you know, everything's going to be all right. There's a, uh, there's a woman on Facebook, her Instagram name is BRB massage. And she is doing what she believes is that human touch is, is, is helping veterans. It's showing them through massage and, and, and she, she posts things about, you know, what dopamine does and, and, and what it does to your brain and things like that. And it's been, it, she's, she's actually a really cool page to follow because she's, she's talking about how human touch is, is, is helping guys, you know, and, and I totally agree because have you ever read the book? I think it's called the, uh, five or seven love languages. Okay, it's about this guy. He wrote a he wrote a book, and he's talking about how he's talking about the different love languages and how people experience um, love. So one of them is um, is acts of kindness. So let's say, for instance, your spouse is a uh, their their love language is acts of kindness. So if you I don't know, say you clean the bathrooms or you you do something for them. That is their love language. And what they have is is like a it's like a pool and you kind of have to fill that pool up with water, but the water is love. And what you want to do is you want to keep the pool f- filled with love because when it goes all the way down to the bottom, then there's emotional emotional issues. Uh, another one is physical touch. And I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I consider myself one of those people, you know, like I like to, if someone does a good job, I give them a pat on the back or, or a high five or something like that. Like my daughter's a really good example of it. She's physical touch because if you, uh, when she's uncomfortable with things or she's like upset, if you, if you rub her arm a little bit with your thumb, it like calms her down. So that's, I'm not going to go through all of them, but th- that's an example and her talking about physical touch through massage, uh, helping veterans, I think that it has a lot of merit because it shows someone that, that they care because typically 
we're not the type of guys to go and hug each other and you know rub each other's shoulders and stuff like that so when they when they start getting that kind of attention not that they're seeking attention even though that they need it it's it's beneficial to them in saying that i think that uh i've heard that the i'm not in the veteran healthcare system and i've never seeked care in the veteran healthcare system have you do you have any stories to share about say um like what the what these guys go through no i don't have any specific stories other than you know seeing them as their physician and and kind of dealing to with um different issues but uh, you know when it comes to touch i'm a do i'm a, a osteopathic medical doctor and we're kind of taught from day one to touch the patient and uh Exactly like she said, you know, when you touch a patient, uh, sometimes you can even talk to them and you just hold the shoulder and things like that. It makes a difference. So, so as far as like the VA, I know from my patients that I've seen, lots of times, you know, they will um, not they're not seen by the same physician. So there's really no um, relationships that you can create. And um, even from my friends who actually work at the VA, uh, some of them are overwhelmed with the numbers of patients they see. And uh, if they want to do certain things, they might not be able to because that's not how it's done. So there's like both sides to those stories. I just feel that the system itself is not really created to um, individualize treatment for a person because everyone is a little bit different. You know, like you said, someone needs touch, someone doesn't want to be touched. But if you don't have time to spend with them, you'll never realize, so you never create that relationship. The most important thing in, in medicine is, uh, I call it this sacred relationship, is between me and my patient. Because if my patient trusts me, they'll do what I ask them to do. So when they come to me and they say, I need an antibiotic, and I say, no, you don't, because it's a viral illness, they'll listen to me. Mm -hmm. But if there's someone that doesn't trust me and I don't give them antibiotic, next thing I know they're going to write a review on the, some kind of website to say I'm the worst doctor ever because I wouldn't give them antibiotic and they know they need one. Yeah. The patient will never do that because they trust my judgment and I trust theirs. So the most sacred relationship you can have is that trust. Um, the VA system in itself is difficult to create that trust because you just don't spend enough time and you will change providers all the time. Lots of times you're seen by a nurse practitioner, not necessarily a physician as well. And some I've heard stories of uh, some being seen by psychologists and they gave them medications. Um, in general, psychologists do not prescribe medications in normal world. At the VA system, supposedly they do. How true is that? I don't know because you know how it is with these bureaucracies. You hear stories, you never know who's telling you what. <laughs> You know, and um, all I know is that um, I have a friend in Arizona who was seeing, um, he was actually seeing a psychiatrist and he kept on having, um, you know, I've connected, connected with a lot of veterans on Instagram and I'm type of person, I think you can see from my post that like people can kind of send me a message and I always respond. And so I've created this network of friends. Some of them I haven't even met facing faces mainly through phone or something and they'll sometimes text me and ask me advice and um you know i have uh, one of them in arizona who was being seen by a psychiatrist in uh, at the va system and you would think that this doctor would be able to help him but this friend of mine was really struggling he was suicidal we went over the medication list and I gave him several suggestions on how to change them. And he asked that physician to change it. He wouldn't do it. And, um, he, you know, he was giving him one medicine for this, one medicine for that. And, uh, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do use some of those medicine. And the ones that you don't use, you can look them up yourself. So I made him look it up with me. And both of us saw that medication is not doing what the doctor is saying because it's not supposed to do. It's actually doing the opposite. But my point is like, I don't want to blame anyone specifically because who knows? All I know is I see those end results where people are not doing well. And I think the people are not doing well because they're not, no one is listening to them. And um, sometimes you just have to listen to a person. You know, I had uh, several guys where based on their post on Instagram, I knew that something was going on with them. And I would send them a text and just say, hey, what are you doing? 
And then they say, well, I had a nightmare or whatever. And I remember being in Walmart uh, doing grocery shopping and kind of talking through him with him uh, about different things. And uh, we started talking about cooking and stuff like that. And he kind of got out of that mood. Uh, sometimes it's just, um, you know, spending some time and not giving medications all the time. And I think that's what happens. A lot of times people go down these rabbit holes and you have this symptom, you have this mess, you have this symptom, you have this. So you end up with like 20 medicine. I can't remember to take one, first of all, myself. And, I'm, I, and I know when I'm taking something that I should be taking it. So you have someone taking 20 medications and some of them are two, three times a day. Um, wow. Actually, I do have an example for you. No, I just remembered it. I have a friend who's uh, one of his um, soldiers in his unit. When they came out and stuff, he actually killed himself. He was going to the VA. He was taking 122 pills a day. Um, the friend told me a story. The wife called him and um, the guy killed himself. Uh, the wife remembers she was sleeping in bed. She remembers her husband coming to give her a kiss at night and she thought that like you know he's gonna go watch tv or something next thing she knows she woke up to the um, sound of a gun this person was seeing a va getting 122 medications a day he was taking 122 pills a day i don't know how many medicine that was to get all together because some of them are three four five times a day but when you take even three medicine they all interact yeah. when you're yeah. taking that many there's no way in hell they're not interacting. And you can take a person who was, again, this normal word, semi-normal, to like not being crazy, but being overly medicated, not being able to deal with side effects of the medications. And then you start having these thoughts that you're not worthy, you don't have a purpose. I think that's the biggest thing. I think purpose is what is lost the most. Feels like maybe he's not a good husband, good dad, good worker, good this. And then he's like, you know what, I'm going to kill myself because my wife's life is going to be better. On the other hand, it's not because now she's she's missing someone who she loves. And uh, so I think our job as a society is to say it's okay to feel whichever way you feel. There's nothing wrong with your feelings. Let me figure out how to help you. And that can be sometimes medicine if you need them, sometimes no medicine. Sometimes it's me finding your job that you like from a friend because that friend had it. Or sometimes is you love music, we sit together and play guitar. You know, I think we just need to acknowledge that it's okay not to feel okay. Yeah. And then, you know, give someone a lending hand, whatever that lending hand is, and there's different ways of doing it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a uh, there's a guy named Matthew Schallard. He was a uh, Air Force PJ, and he's on uh, Instagram as well. And he created a a foundation. It's called the Beyond the Surface Foundation. And what he does is he takes veterans on um like on a retreat, and they go kiteboarding and they play water sports and stuff like that. But the idea is to get them immersed in water. And he does yo yoga. There's yoga is also a, a big part of it, and and he, you know, he does these things with them. And it, I think the idea behind it is to give them an idea of when you're not feeling well, or maybe like a purpose to do something that you can use if, if you're having negative feelings to try to keep you, I, I would say in the green, then in uh, outside, like in the red. And I think, you know, we need to, um, we need to teach the veteran himself, herself what the warning signs are, their family, their friends. And then when you start feeling like it's getting out of control, they need to feel comfortable to reach out. And right, that's why you right. have all these different groups that are doing different things. Like we have a, a group, a bunch of guys that's up here in my general area, and they're really awesome. They're called Vets Extreme. They're also on Instagram. But they take guys uh, hunting here in Texas for, uh, I, again, I'll say it wrong. I think they're like wild pigs, hoax, I don't know. But they do these like big uh, hunting things and um, you know, it's their time to do bonding. And recently, a few months back, they had a, uh, they, I was there, it was really cold. I was just sitting and watching them, but they had a big, uh, they were in a gun range and, and they did a competition. And uh, it's just that sense of community back. Right. And, you know, there are different ways of doing it. There is yoga, there is music, there is, uh, 
hikes, there is hunting trips, there is, it's not one size fits all. I think that's what we need to realize that all these uh, veteran organizations, they all have a purpose and they're all doing a great job because there's no one size fits all. What works for me might not work for you and that's totally fine. But our job is to, you know, figure this out and catch people before they start um, spiraling down because what what ends up, they end up homeless. You know, they end up losing their families. They end up uh, getting into substance abuse, uh, alcohol, and uh, then they end up killing themselves. And and I, I think, like, that's why I say num- I don't like number 22 because even number one, uh, is uh, one too many. No one should feel desperate enough that they have to kill themselves. If there is one person that feels that way, that means we're not doing our jobs. And it's not even physician job. It's your job and my job and everyone's job. We all have a... And uh, the, the first part is just to say it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. You know, uh, I post, I think, yesterday on my Instagram something about... Uh, I know this happens to women a lot where like on the outside you're great, but inside you're crumbling down and then you go into a room and cry. We allow ourselves to cry. Guys don't. There's nothing wrong with crying, you know, like we need to. And it's not like and I'm not talking about this new millennial thing that we're raising. We're like all freaking out. No, like even for the most stoic guy, if there is a need to cry, the crying itself releases the neurotransmitters and it truly makes you feel better. It means like sometimes like you have that crying fit for two minutes and after that you feel like, okay, now I can do what I have to do. <laughs> you know, what? I, I think women in general, they, they experience their emotions and they accept their emotions way better than guys do. You know, I think guys in general, we try to suppress uh, emotions and, and we, um, we don't experience them in the right way. And it's okay. You know, I'm not saying that like you guys have to cry, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, at some point, you have to stop lying to yourself. You have to say, you know what? I'm having a crappy day. And it's <laughs> I'm having a crappy day. I, you know, tomorrow's going to be better. Tonight, I'm going to sit in front of TV and watch football until I can't watch it anymore. But like, at least in your mind, uh, give yourself a break if you don't want to do it on the outside. And that's, you know, we have to start as a site in saying, it's okay, take a timeout. Take the timeout, whatever the timeout is for you, you know, going out, uh, for a run, go out for a run, you know, whatever it is. Just try to stay away from, like, drowning your sorrows in alcohol and substance, uh, other, you know, illegal drugs and different things like that, because then when you start spiraling, you start with little, 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 and it ends up more, and you reach a point where it's very difficult to, uh, you know, everyone can be rehabilitated, but it, it, you reach a point where you don't realize you have a problem and it, it becomes more of an issue. So um, it's the whole PTSD, whatever issues, it's not a one person problem. It's a community problem. It's all of our problems. You mentioned that you were, you were working on a proposal trying to make a bill. Could you, could you talk about that? So, um, you know, I, I'm type of a person, I'm actually an introvert, which is really funny because you can't really tell anymore. I've, I've, I've adjusted myself to, um, like at the end of the day, I crash and I don't want to talk to anyone. But during the day, <laughs> That's <funny>. enough. <laughs> so I've been fortunate enough to meet, uh, you know, a lot of amazing people. And I, um, you know, I met Boone Cutler and uh, through Boone, um, I, I worked with uh, Carl Mungren and, um, Boone knew that I wanted to do something for veterans and he knows I love advocacy I, I like legislation and stuff like that and and he was and now we were like let's write a bill and the idea was uh, you know they're the ones that gave me the background for the bill we kind of I kind of wrote it wrote it out and then we they took what I wrote and reworked it so we have this thing that we all three of us contributed and made but the idea is, and the guys really explained to me, so when you guys transition, when you're still an um, active duty soldier and you're thinking about transitioning to civilian life, and let's say you're stationed in Georgia, um, you do all your transitioning in Georgia, right? You do your um, 
resume writing, they hook up with uh, maybe the VA or different groups, or maybe you go to a job fair or whatever, the transition is done by tap, whichever way it's done. But it's all done right there in Georgia, right? So you're done, you get your DD-214, right? Yeah, DD-214. There you go. Uh, guys always laugh at me because I always forget the numbers. But anyway, so you get all this stuff and then you're done and you go on up and, and, you, and you go back to Texas. You just probably wasted, what, six months of your life because you went from Georgia to Texas. Nothing that happened in Georgia is going to work in Texas. So our idea is for people who want to go back home, so let's say you're in Georgia, you want to go to Texas or whatever, um, that you do transitioning at the base that's closest to your home. Mm-hmm. so that you can get plugged into the system as soon as possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, because the VA system in uh, Texas is not exactly the same as the one in Georgia, although it's like a federal, but it's really not, because they all kind of uh, work in their own silos. So those things are different. And then, like, if job fairs, employers, different things, you want to get plugged in right there where you're going to be working and then there is opportunity for veteran groups like Vets Extremes and stuff to actually pick you guys up right away in your own state and then start uh, creating relationships so that you don't feel like you've lost buddies and stuff like that because right. you lost online. So the idea is to do transition where you're going to end up so that is hopefully there is better support and there is uh, less uh, risk of you falling through the cracks, not getting a job, you know, becoming homeless, getting into substance abuse and other issues. The idea is just to kind of start this process a little bit different. And eventually what I would like to do is actually um, take the TAP program and make it a whole lot better. But that's something that's like, you know, that's a goal in life, in life that knowing me, I'll, I'll get to it. But uh, my point is, like, we can definitely make it better, but that's not what we're trying to do. Our first step is let's do it where you want to go so that we can plug you into home state as soon as possible so that you can start having relationships again and that you don't feel like you lost purpose and that you lost your tribe. Because I think from talking, especially to the younger veterans, you know, I see a lot of veterans from the Vietnam War and stuff like that. I think those issues are different. I think someone like your age, what I find is they don't have a purpose. Um, They've lost that sense of tribe, they kind of feel um, on an island while everything else is happening around them. They don't know how to process it. So I think if, if we plug them in as soon as possible, where they're going to live, there's going to be a chance that they will be able to reintegrate better. Yeah, I agree. You know, alcohol is like just such a, you know, it's like one of those things that, um, you know even physicians a lot of physicians have those issues right right you know and it's like you, it, it's it's easy to to kind of overlook you know it's like oh okay just having a beer you know you can't say yeah. you can't have a drink do you know what i mean but mm-hmm. it's it's when it starts getting abused when when you should probably say something but then at the same time it's you know it could be somebody just working through something you know and but where's the line where's the line of of somebody like this guy needs help, you know, or it's like, you know, maybe this guy can work it out. I think it's drawing that line is, is really difficult. It is. And actually maybe, um, we can do another podcast down the line, but, um, you and I are friends on Instagram and Facebook. So I don't know if you saw one of the posts recently, I've recently been asked to be a president on uh, project shot at dawn. Um, I have several veteran things I do, but this is going to be my like third or fourth one. But that one is also amazing because this actually, this one allows for those risk factors to be seen, um, to, for uh, active military even to be um, to ident- to be to be able to identify what those risk factors are, and not to deny them and kind of gloss over them, but to actually make everyone aware of them and start dealing with them as soon as possible. Because uh, it's like you said, you start with one beer, one beer is okay. Next thing you, you end up, you start drinking 10 beers at night. 
timbers are not at night are not okay for anyone. Yeah. Um, Especially and, if it starts off with ten beers with your buddies, and then the next thing you know, you're sitting in a room, in a dark room, drinking ten beers by yourself. Exactly. So I think like we need to um, we need to start ident- identifying all those issues as soon as possible and dealing with them. And it doesn't have to be in a bad manner. It's just like you have a friend talk to a friend. So um, I think it's really important just to stop denying what's happening. Yeah. And, uh, and kind of uh, take the bull by the horns, as they like to say in Texas, and deal with these issues, uh, you know, head on, because um, you can keep your head in the sand or you can deal with it. And if you deal with it, then we're not going to have loss of life. And that's, that, you know, um, at the end of the day, loss of life is unacceptable. And um, again, I'll go back to that one. We lose one person, that's one too many. Yeah. I don't care what the number is. I don't care if the number is 22, 15, 13, 10. One person is too many. So um, we as a society, you and I and all our friends, um, you know, when you have that one friend that like he texts you every single day call him it's your job as his friend to call him and say hey what's going on with you because something's going on and if you do that if you call that person maybe you can you know save his life because maybe he is down spiraling right and i keep on saying he it's not the he it's a he and she right you know it's i uh, use it as a loose term no i know but it's like you know it's it so you know it's it's such a it's a society problem it's not it's not and that's i think that's what society has lost like they think like oh this is a veteran problem it's not the veteran problem first of all it's it starts in military most likely it's all about problems it might have started even before military but then you kind of flew under the radar and something happened and it kind of got exacerbated you know it's all of our problem it's it's a it's a human problem yeah, I agree with you because I mean it's it's it is a military problem because it starts there and it and it's a civilian problem because uh, guys end up in the civilian world and the, you know the military needs to be prepared to take care of these guys for the transition and in a way the civilians need to accept those people and um, and, and give them a place in society that's uh, you know that's suitable for them you know you know you know I was not in military so hopefully I can't get in trouble with anyone. But in my opinion, this all starts, the problem starts in military. And uh, again, I have no firsthand experience. This is just from talking to different people, you know, listening to different stories. These things probably start even during training for some of you guys. But it's uh, swept under the rug. And then when you guys get injured, you know, who started pain medications? Started in military. Mm-hmm. Now you come out and you keep on going and going and going. So yes, it, we need. To, I think what we can do is do our part on the veteran side, but eventually there's, there's going to have to be a conversation with uh, DOD and stuff. And I know that's like people always say, "Don't talk about anything bad." It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like the problem doesn't start when you become a vet, when you're a veteran, when you leave. The problem has started a long time ago. Mm-hmm. We're just catching you now here. And I think lots of issues between like uh, VA and uh, military. Military likes to say it's a your problem. Uh, VA likes to say no, it's your problem. No one wants to acknowledge it's all of our problems. Right. You know, and um, whether you're a veteran or not, you became veteran because you went into military first, right? So it always started there. It didn't start when you got out. It started there. So uh, I think we just need to. Eventually, that, that's conversation that we will have to have. I don't think people are ready, although, although I feel they're a little bit um, more ready than they were before. But, you know, one thing I can No kidding. Well, you know what? Uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I'm, I'm very appreciative. It was a, it was a great podcast and, uh, you know, very enlightening. And I was really looking forward looking forward to this. And... Uh, but I wanted to thank you again for, for coming on. Could you give everybody your um, your social information, like your Instagram, Facebook, where to find you? So if they want to follow you, they can. So my Instagram is BrockDocTexas, so B-R-O-C-K-D-O-C, Texas. And then my Instagram is just my first and last name, Katarina Lindley. 
Um, and um, the other Instagram account is Shot at Dawn Project with Conrad Jeffries that we do. And uh, I also serve on the um, uh, advisory committee for uh, Centurion Military Alliance, who actually does the transition work. And uh, I know we didn't touch on that, but they do an amazing job. Um, they do it in uh, San Antonio, the base there, they do it in um, Killeen, Texas, uh, and stuff. So what they do is they actually bring the, once, uh, uh, once a month they go through either one, and they bring the actual employers to the whole day training with the, some of them are active, some of them are, are you know, veterans, and the employers teach veterans and these guys how to interview. I realized that you guys have no clue how to interview for a job. <laughs> I was, doctors don't know either because we're not used to it, uh, but you guys are really clueless. Mm. Uh, so do you have these uh, employers tell them, no, 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 don't say that. You want to say this. Yeah. And it's really yeah. amazing to see the, the work that they do. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's kind of refreshing to see success stories. Yeah. Uh, come yeah. to this. So there's a lot that all of us can do. Well, once again, thank you. And uh, we're going to have to do this again sometime. Awesome. Thank you. All right. This is all we got for you today. This is Pre out. Mm -hmm.